Join me on my journey as I explore wealth in all areas of life. I'm your host, Mindy Kinnis, and this is The Lucrative Society. All right, all right. Let's talk about some more books. I so loved last month when I was sharing a little bit about what I had been reading and asked you for your comments, your feedback, and holy cow, did I get a lot. That was awesome. So thank you, first and foremost. And secondly, do you people read fiction? (laughs) Because almost all of the feedback that I got, if not all, was business books or personal development books. Now, you know, I am all for those things. I love those kind of books. But my question is, like, really, are you reading any fiction? Because if not, I dare say you are missing out. There's a really, really interesting essay by Helen Benedict that I read once about nonfiction versus fiction. And she was a journalist, so typically very much on the nonfiction side of that spectrum. But what she talks about in this essay is that she ended up writing a novel, a fictional story, based on the research that she was doing. She had wanted to write a book about teen mothers. And what she found in her interviews and her research was that while they were very open to talking about their experience, it tended toward the side of the positive. You know, like how how excited they were to become a mother and how great things were. And she was like, yeah, there's this whole other part of the story that needs to be told, or at least she wanted to tell, that they were not necessarily as forthcoming about like the traumas and the tribulations of their experience and what they were going through. And she also said, you know, if she were to write a nonfiction book, there was this hesitancy because you don't necessarily want to expose everything, you know, all the bad stuff about any given person. There is a responsibility to protect their privacy or protect just their vulnerability. And so she ended up writing this book as fiction. And what she says is that she actually was able to get closer or nearer to the truth. And I found that really, really fascinating. And I read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of everything, quite honestly. But I love fiction because so much truth or real life comes through in these stories. And if you consider yourself a student of life or a student of the human condition, as I consider myself, you should absolutely be reading fiction because so much of these truths and these experiences that are accurate across culture, across you know any type of diversity, whether it be sexual orientation, religious orientation, political orientation, whatever, We are all human, and in fiction, we can learn about other cultures, other ideas, other mindsets, and it can be a beautiful way to express the truths about being human and also hopefully encourage more empathy within each one of us when we maybe we attach to a character and we can maybe see things from their perspective or see why they would do certain things or understand 
even things about people in our own life that previously we would be like, what is wrong with that person? (laughs) Fiction allows that. And sometimes it's much more engaging and even, dare I say, more interesting than a sometimes not so interesting or engaging nonfiction book. So I will fly the flag of fiction again and again, and I do hope that you engage in some of it. There is so much good stuff out there. So let's talk about the books I read in September of this year. The first exciting thing about September is that I achieved my reading challenge goal on Goodreads. If you are not on goodreads.com, I highly recommend it. I have no affiliation with them, so just go to goodreads.com, check it out. What I like about it is that you are able to keep track of your books, connect with other readers in your life, and they also gamify it a little bit. Each year, you can choose your own reading challenge. That is, how many books do you want to finish in the coming year? And last year, I had put 52. Well, I should say two years ago. So for 2019, I had put, I wanted to read 52 books, and I pretty much just made it. I got 53 in 2019, but I also recall that in December I was reading some really short books <laughs> to kind of just make make my goal. This year, going into 2020, I had put 52 again, so one book a week, and I just finished it in September. So only three quarters in, I'd already read 52 books. I'm at 53 now, so let's just say I have a ton more time in my life these days. So in September, one of the books I read was On Writing by Stephen King. It's On Writing, A Memoir of the Craft. And I had actually read this first in 2013. And what I wrote, the reason I know this is because it's in Goodreads. (laughs) What I wrote back in 2013 was, how did I go through grad school in writing and not have read this book? And I think I was just probably too big of a snob back then. I'm like, oh, Stephen King, like he just writes horror and it's so, so genre, you know, I, I don't need to read that. Well, anyway, that was ridiculous because this book is amazing. I reread it this year because I really felt like I had lost some of the, the juice that I got in writing. I have always considered myself a writer ever since I was a little kid. I was writing poems, you know, that were not good (laughs) and stories and all kinds of different things. And now I'm writing my book. I'm working on a book about my heart path retreat content, essentially just putting all of that content into a book And I didn't feel that jazzed about it. I kind of felt like everything I wrote, every sentence was like flat and boring. And I'm like, this is just annoying to me. So I picked up this book again, because really, I just wanted to get some of that, that joy back in the process. And I, I remembered feeling that the first time I read this, I'm like, all right, time for another, another go through. And here's what he says in the book. At its most basic, we are only discussing a learned skill. But do we not agree that sometimes the most basic skills can create things far beyond our expectations? We are talking about tools and carpentry, about words and style. But as we move along, you do well to remember that we are also talking about magic. So by the time I finished the book, I I did feel reinvigorated to write, and I have Stephen King to thank for that. 
I haven't read a lot of books by Stephen King. I've actually only read two other than on writing. I did read The Shining earlier this year just because I wanted to see how he puts words together and how he thinks about things and his ideas. And, you know, I I would still say that it's not my favorite genre by any means. I gave The Shining three stars because I'm like, "Eh, interesting story, but whatever. It doesn't really grab me that much. But one book that I really did enjoy by him was called 112263. And as many of Stephen King's books are, it's a it's a beast of a book in terms of like it could be used as a doorstop. It's it's a big, huge, thick book. And what that one is about is time travel. Time travel back to the year where JFK is assassinated. And it's this whole interesting story about, like, if we could go back and change history, is that the best idea? So let's say we could go back in time and JFK would not be assassinated because we could have saved him by knowing what we know now. But then what happens in the ripple effect You know, that whole idea of the butterfly effect. If something changes, then everything changes, right? So it's a really, really interesting story. I did like that one. I read that a number of years ago. That's 112263. But back to this year, another book I read last month was The Black Ice. This is a part of the Harry Bosch series by Michael Conley. This was recommended to me by my best friend Keith when I was telling him about the Inspector Gamache series that I talked about last month. And he was like, you know, if you like these detective stories or books like that, check out Harry Bosch. He has gone through, there's lots and lots of books in this series. So I had started and the first one that I read, I was like, yeah, not not bad. It's a very different type of storytelling than Louise Penny uses with the Gamache books. Those are so much based on just relationship and Gamash is this like just gentle giant of a man in terms of his wisdom and his knowledge and his gentleness and his his smarts in understanding people and psychology. And Harry Bosch is just like dirty. <laughs> he's scrappy. He He's also very smart. All of this stuff impacts him so differently. So like I said, it's a very different type of book. There's tons of police jargon, you know, cop lingo in the book. A lot of the times I'm reading it, I'm like, I don't even know what this means because I don't speak cop lingo. But this second book is called The Black Ice. And I I would say I was less than impressed. I liked the first one better. So I gave this one three stars. And a lot of people talk about in series that it kind of takes a few to get going, not only as the reader, but as the writer. I think as writers go through series, they get the flow more. They get to understand and get to know the character that they're writing about. More. I remember when I first started reading the first few Harry Potters, I was like, mm, whatever. But as you go through this series, by the end, I'm like, oh my god, I love these books. <laughs> so that definitely happened also with the Gamache series, although I'm not sure about that one. As you heard last month, I'm there's some that are better than others. But my hope is that this Harry Bosch stuff also keeps getting better. So I, I have not thrown it out the window yet. Now, this next book, I will say, is 
the most important book I read this year. So if there is one book that you take and you read this year or soon, it would be this. It's called Why We Sleep. Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams by Matthew Walker, Ph.D. This guy is a sleep scientist. And while I will put a tiny little caveat in there that I know how tunnel vision can happen when you are hugely involved in any one aspect, and I see this all the time with uh, specialists in health, um, even specialists in psychology, even specialists in business, I would say, we tend to think that that then is the end all be all solve all the problems. <laughs> and to some extent, that may be true. But I also recognize that people can have blinders that are put on and just say like, this is the one thing. One of the things that I really like about being a seven on the Enneagram is that I'm interested in everything. <laughs> so there's really never going to be a time that I'm like, whoa, this is it. This is the end all be all because I look at life as a buffet. I want to sample all the stuff. I want to try all the things and taste them, not, not necessarily go in depth in any one given topic. Like this guy has dedicated and devoted himself to sleep. Now, those of you that have known me for a while know that I am a huge, huge proponent of sleep. Actually, what was funny, I was just laughing with one of my clients, Sandy, recently because I was interviewing her. I want to put her story in my book. She has come such a dramatic distance from the woman that I met uh, a, few, a number of years ago to today. And I want to tell that story. And one of the things that she reminded me of when we were doing the interview was she said, Mindy, you wouldn't even work with me until I slept. When I met her, she was sleeping three or four hours a night. And I didn't even remember this, but she just reminded me. She said, Mindy, you would not even like we couldn't even start working together until I was getting at least six hours. She was just not taking care of herself. And like I said, today, if you met her, totally different person. But what I love so much about this book is he gives scientific backing to the very thing that I have been saying for years and years and years. And that is, all of us are not the same. We do not have the same daily hormonal patterns. We do not have the same sleep patterns. We do not have the same circadian rhythm. And to everybody who is believing the people out there that say you have to get up at 5 a.m. to be successful, it simply isn't true. And there's scientific research to prove that that is not true. Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying those people are lying. That may very well work for them. And that's great. They're sharing that from the perspective of this is what worked for me. But here's the thing. You cannot base your life on what works for somebody else. We are not all the same. So take everything with a grain of salt and say, does this work for me? And it may. And if it does, that's fantastic. But if it doesn't, you're not doing it wrong. You're not broken. You're not messed up. You're just different. And hallelujah, that's a good thing. If we were all the same, oh my gosh, how boring would this be? 
So looking into this Why We Sleep book, and truly, if you're going to read one book, read this. This is what he says. And this goes to my point that I was just describing. My rhythm is not your rhythm. Although every human being displays an unyielding 24-hour pattern, the respective peak and trough points are strikingly different from one individual to the next. He categorizes people as either night owls or morning larks, and he says this, an adult's owlness or larkness, also known as their chronotype, is strongly determined by genetics. If you are a night owl, it's likely that one or both of your parents is also a night owl. Sadly, society treats night owls rather unfairly on two counts. First is the label of being lazy. Based on a night owl's want to wake up later in the day due to the fact that they did not fall asleep until the early morning hours, others, usually morning likes, will chastise night owls on the erroneous assumption that such preferences are a choice. And if they were not so slovenly, they could easily wake up early. Now, I have mentioned on previous episodes that I used to suffer extreme debilitating migraines. Now, there were probably lots of different factors for that, but I guarantee one of them was I was not getting enough sleep. And nowadays, when I am very, very focused on my sleep, I don't have migraines anymore. And this was life-changing for me. Now check this out. Sleep impacts so many different health factors in our body. In this particular case, he's talking about how sleep, or I should say the lack of sleep, can negatively impact your cardiovascular system. So much so, listen to this, this is amazing. For cardiovascular health, I believe that finding comes from a global experiment in which 1.5 billion people are forced to reduce their sleep by one hour or less for a single night each year. Now he's talking about one hour less. Most of us would think, ah, that's not a big deal, but he claims that it is. It is very likely that you have been part of this experiment, otherwise known as daylight savings time. In the Northern Hemisphere, the switch to daylight savings time in March results in most people losing an hour of sleep opportunity. Should you tabulate millions of daily hospital records, as researchers have done, you discover that this seemingly trivial sleep reduction comes with a frightening spike in heart attacks the following day. Impressively, it works both ways. In the autumn, within the northern hemisphere, when the clocks move forward and we gain an hour of sleep opportunity time, rates of heart attacks plummet the day after. A similar rise and fall relationship can be seen with the number of traffic accidents, proving that the brain, by way of attention lapses and micro-sleeps, is just as sensitive as the heart to very small perturbations of sleep. And listen to this. This is how sleep can impact cancer and other immune issues, which, oh, by the way, is a big, big deal these days. He says, Dr. Michael Irwin at the University of California, Los Angeles, has performed landmark studies revealing just how quickly and comprehensively a brief dose of short sleep can affect your cancer-fighting immune cells. 
examining healthy young men, Irwin demonstrated that a single night of four hours of sleep, such as going to bed at 3 a.m. and waking up at 7 a.m., swept away 70% of the natural killer cells circulating in the immune system relative to a full eight-hour night of sleep. That is huge. So you are more likely to have a heart attack. You are more likely to get cancer. You are more likely to get Alzheimer's, as he suggests in this book, with the research. This, to me, is fascinating. He also talks about it not always in the negative sense of like what can happen if you don't get enough sleep, but what can happen if you get enough sleep. There's healing that goes on in the conscious and unconscious mind. There's greater access to creativity. So many good things. I would highly, highly recommend this book, Why We Sleep. I gave it five stars, and as I've said before, I don't give out five stars very generously, but this one was definitely deserving of that. And if you get the chance to listen to it, if you're more into the audio book thing, that is also great because it is narrated by a gentleman named Steve West. He is a British guy with a just deep, lovely voice, so he reads it. When I first started listening to the book, I'm like, wait a minute, I know this voice. How do I know this voice? Well, as it turns out, Steve West is also a narrator on the app Sleepiest, which I have used in the past. And Sleepiest, it's a super cute app. It is bedtime stories. (laughs) And as I said, Steve West is one of the narrators on that. So it was kind of funny for me to be like, wait, how do I know this guy? Oh, yeah, it's from from the bedtime stories. So he's a great narrator, would highly recommend that as well. So five stars to Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep. And finally, I read a novel called Before We Were Yours. This is by Lisa Wingate. And this is a historical novel based on true events. And this is crazy to me. I, you know, I have a hard time with people who do rotten stuff, you know, who are just rotten people. But I really, like, it really tests my limits of uh, judgment (laughs) and discernment when I hear about people who are just really rotten to children. I, I cannot stand that. And this is a book about a, a woman who actually existed. Her name was Georgia Tan. She was involved with the Tennessee Children's Home Society in the early to mid 1900s. And what she did was she essentially became a child trafficker. She, she started selling children essentially on the black market, she had the, the front of being involved in this children's home society. Except what she would do is she would often sell children to, to be adopted to celebrities and very affluent people who could pay her a significant amount of money. Now, remember, this is back in like the early part of the 1900s. The Tennessee Children's Home Society would sometimes charge $7 for an adoption. Georgia Tan herself, when the checks were being made to her directly, would charge something like $700. Now, back then, that was an exorbitant amount of money. And 
not only that, like that's, that's pretty awful, but way, way, way worse, at least in my opinion, is that she would steal children. <laughs> she would steal them from poor families who wouldn't then have the means to go about getting them back. Georgetown also had the judges and the courts and the authorities in her back pocket, so she probably wasn't going to get in trouble anyway. But these these poor people wouldn't have the ability to fight her, to fight the system that she had created to get their kids back. So she would claim, and then of course all the documentation was doctored, so she would tell these you know, very well-meaning adoptive parents, oh, you know, her her mother died in childbirth, or oh, she had cancer and she passed away. But really, these people's parents were still alive and like wanting to get their kids back. Another scam she pulled is stealing babies away from people. And then the doctors or the nurses would tell the mother, oh, we're so sorry, but your child died. You know, there was nothing we can do. Meanwhile, this baby has been spirited away to some wealthy family that wanted a newborn baby to adopt. And yuck. I mean, and the stories just continue and continue. So this book, Before We Were Yours, is a fictional story based on that, and it's told from two perspectives. One perspective being back in the day while this was going on, and then the other perspective being current day or a modern day story. And then, of course, to make a good novel, those two stories tie together, which is always great. And it's it's a great story. I gave it four stars. I thought she has kind of the perfect mix of historical information, a little bit of romance sprinkled in, not in the like romance novel type of way, but just, you know, a little bit to keep it cute and keep it engaging. I, I think that's nice. To me, it's just an extraordinary story about what happened. And like I said, she she tells it well, and it just exposes this thing. I had never heard of this, but once I started looking into the history and the research around it, I'm like, oh my gosh, Like I can't even believe this happened. Here's the most interesting thing to me. There was an investigation based on what was going on with this whole Georgetown and her army. They were never actually able to press charges against her because she ended up passing away in 1950 before all of this was exposed. She died of cancer in 1950. And one piece of information that I came across, I was like, oh my goodness, the cancer that she died from was uterine cancer. Now, for those of you that have been in my world for a while, you know about things like energy medicine and metaphysics and all of this stuff and so many of our physical experiences come from our emotional experiences as they say the issues are in the tissues think about how crazy it is that she had cancer in her uterus the uterus of all things in the human body talk about like the the seat of motherhood the essence of creation of another person. I mean, whoa. (laughs) So really, she was externally known as like the matron, the savior of all of these adopted children. But 
internally, she was abusing these kids. There is case after case after case of kids being molested, kids being abused, kids being neglected, kids being malnourished, kids even dying. And then she just miraculously like loses the record of that kid. It is shocking to me, but, but yet not so shocking. Someone who is so cruel to children, but claiming to be this motherly figure, then she gets cancer of the uterus. What? It is amazing to me how well our body correlates what is going on in our external world. So that to me, like I said, was the most interesting part. And of course, I want to trace the psychology. I want to say, who, what creates a person like that, that is okay with doing something like that to children? And not just one child, but multiple hundreds of children over the years, over decades. And here's what's also interesting is they didn't even open the records of everything that went down till 1995. So all of these victims that had been either placed in adoptive homes and, you know, their the true records of their family history had been erased or changed, they didn't even get access to this information until 1995. I mean, that's almost 50 years later after she had died. That to me is also crazy. But anyway, that was Before We Were Yours. I do highly recommend it. And as I said, I do highly recommend that you read fiction as well as nonfiction, just so that you're a well-rounded human being. <laughs> if you have a great recommendation for me or just want to let me know what you are reading, definitely go check it out at lucra.com. Let me know in the comments to this episode. I am always looking for great recommendations, especially the ones that like rock your world, knock your socks off. Those are the ones that I really want to know about. Let me know what's great. You know, let me know what some of the best books that you have read are. So that wraps up this episode on books. Next week, I will be back with another interview. So I will see you then. Take care and have an amazing week. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to The Lucrative Society on iTunes. And please leave a review of the podcast. Visit lucra.com for transcripts and resources or to become a member of The Lucrative Society, where I coach purpose-based entrepreneurs on business, mindset, and heartset. Lucra, where wealth equals well-being.